scripture today is Acts 21, 27 through 36. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trimophius, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Good. I liked it. Well done. All right. Good morning. morning. It's an exciting, action-packed thing. Oh, look, Allen wrenches. If you lost your Allen wrenches, here they are. Uh... Hope everybody had a, a great Thanksgiving. Mine was surprisingly uneventful. What is with this thing? I saw this happen earlier while I was back there and she was up here. Just tightened. Ow, oh! <laughs> Allen wrenches. It all makes sense now. <laughs> all right. All right. Glad the ice is broken. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Um, okay, so here's what we're talking about today. We got a few things. Um, I mean, when you look at a passage, there's a few different ways you could come at it, um, and sometimes they do the history thing, and sometimes teaching and stuff. Today's very much more pastoral. We're talking about false accusations and, and reputation and gossip and, and spiritual disciplines uh, that, that help us sort of deal with these things. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot sort of going on here, and there's, there's so many things, and, and so I think next time I come to this passage, we'll talk about sort of Paul's response to all this, but I, I want you to sort of pay attention to like how things escalated, uh, how things kind of went, and then we're going to talk sort of about like what's going on in Paul's mind, well, how did Jesus communicate to us that we can talk about false accusations and stuff like that. So let's pray, and uh, let's jump into this passage. Father, thank you. Uh, for meeting us here. Thank you for, for allowing us to have a space to gather in. It's all a gift. Thank you for the people that you've brought here. Uh, they are a gift to us, even if we don't know them all yet and, and we haven't connected deeply on, on, uh, on relational levels. I pray that uh, you would begin um, helping that to happen now, this morning. Uh, I pray that we would begin to sort of connect our lives together, that we would learn to grow together, that we would um, see each other, hear each other, look for the, look for the um, sort of the... the the longing in people's eyes if they're looking for relationships and, and friendships. I pray that we would see them. Um, I pray that we would be a place of healing and goodness and reconciliation, that we would not be a place that seeks power over each other but seeks to serve under each other, that we would be a place that uh, can represent your kingdom well in a, in a world that does not. Um, and let that start right now as we contemplate some of the more sort of gritty parts of life, uh, gossip and and uh, the ways that uh, our reputation gets tarnished and, and how we think about ourselves. And, and let us sort of bring all that to you right now. Uh, speak to us, deal with us. Allow me to speak clearly the things that I've studied this week. And uh, may we have a, a really, really good time together. Thank you. Amen. 
All right, so oh, a few things I wanted to like sort of, uh, sometimes I make, make, make myself little notes. Um, again, I'm getting more and more questions about sort of um, the, the, the mask policy and stuff. Basically, we've been trying from the very beginning to just follow CDC guidelines. So there's a, there's a level under which it drops infection rates in our county and, uh, and then we're masked off and when it goes above that, we put our mask back on. And so you'll see the staff sort of leading the way. We, we, we've decided once sort of the vaccine is available, all by the way, I do encourage you to get vaccinated. I'm about to get, me and my wife about to get our third jab coming up soon. Um, and uh, I, I, I do encourage you to do that as sort of a service, a sacrificial service to the world around you, giving of yourself and your rights and your privileges and all the American stuff to be like Christ in the people's presence um, and uh, to help them and serve them. So I, I do encourage you to do that. I also, uh, yeah, just if you have questions, just ask. And, and uh, if you want to wear a mask all the time, do it. And uh, if you, people around you, like I, if you want me to do when I'm talking to you, just I'm totally fine with that. It doesn't matter to me. Um, so, but uh, if you see all the staff put their mask back on and everything, it's because the infection rate went above. And believe me, when the infection rate goes above the level, I will hear about it within the hour from many people. Thank you. I appreciate all of it. Um, uh, I mean that. I actually do. Uh, so I don't have to pay attention to everything. So, um, yeah. Uh, the other thing was, yeah, in, in the new year, we're hoping to bring back a lot of the things that we have loved and lost during COVID, like um, our break and our, um, our, our coffee and, and sort of that kind of stuff, and we're trying to figure out a way to do communion. I, I, I just, I really want to take communion regularly, but I, I want to do it the way we did, like the way we used to, where we gather. And so it may be the kind of thing where um, we just kind of present it and leave it open, and those who are comfortable do it for a while, and uh, I don't know. We're trying to figure it out. I kind of am very much against the little stupid cups, where you rip the thing off and you pull the thing out, packaged in somewhere in Jersey. I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't want to do that. Um, anyways, Jersey's fine. I love your place, whichever exit you live off of. Um, okay, so I've already prayed. I've already done the intro. Here we go. False accusations. So what we have here is Paul. Paul is back in Jerusalem. He's taken a, a sort of a, a purification ritual vow with, with seven other people um, to prove that he is indeed um, an observant Jew when he's entering into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and he's in, the, he's in the temple, and the people see him. And it's a festival time, so there's millions, literally millions of people would come to the, to the city center at this point in time uh, when, during the festivals when they were going on. And people from all over the place who Paul had visited their cities are there in the temple, and they begin to recognize Paul. He's becoming quite famous. Um, and some people from Ephesus, Asian Jews, they recognize Paul, and they point him out. And as they're pointing him out, maybe there's some Pharisees or whatever, but people start to realize that he's there with some other people, um, and he's talking to them. And then someone else throws in a bit, a bit of juicy gossip and says, well, those are Gentiles. We saw them over there. So let's, let's read the passage a little bit here just to just make, catch our bearings. He has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So you have a false accusation based upon sort of a, a misunderstanding. They see Paul and they realize like, oh, He's with this guy. I saw him out there. That guy's a Gentile. And so the people get up in arms. The people get very, very, very mad. And it says this. It says, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. So you have, I want you to picture him, them like sort of grabbing him, dragging him out and down the steps. And the Levites come up behind him and push the door shut. Massive, huge doors. And they slam the door shut. It was a big, huge deal that they thought there was a Gentile in the Jewish center. And you might, you know, modern day we read this kind of stuff and we think, well, that's really racist not to allow other people in and stuff. Um, I want you to have some context of all of this. Um, 
This was not a powerful people. This was a very small, oppressed minority people, the Jewish people living under Roman occupation in their own small city, um, trying their best to make their way and, 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 and to do their, their rituals and their, their, their cult worships and all this stuff. And the, um, <clears throat> the authorities over them and the people around them for centuries had completely abused them over and over and over. If, if you look back at the history of, of, of Gentiles defiling the temple, it's very long. I mean, there was even a time when the Samaritans came down from the mountain and they defiled the temple by hiding, spreading bones around in the temple. Um, <clears throat> but there's a few more. Um, in 168, there's this king named King Antiochus. You can read about it uh, in, in um, the Maccabean uh, literature, the intertestamental period there. Uh, and, and, and King Antiochus, he desecrates the temple by going in and offering and sacrificing a pig on the altar, something that they didn't do. Um, also brings some statues in and sets them up. And then he renames the temple um, after, the, uh, after Olympian Zeus and, and begins instituting sort of the worship of Olympian Zeus there. Um, <clears throat> This did not go well, obviously, to, led to violence and rebellion and all this stuff and uprising. Um, and then 100 years later, in, <clears throat> in 68 BC, um, you have this Roman general named Pompey who, who takes control of the temple and he goes so far as to, as to enter into the Holy of Holies. Like he walks right through the gate into the, into the area where the Ark of the Covenant is after slaying the priests and tying up a bunch of other ones. Um, there's a long history of Gentiles abusing the Jewish people uh, and entering into their temple and desecrating it and just mocking their religion um, and, and in general sort of humiliating them over and over and over and over again, which is why when you see Paul there with these men and he's accused of bringing a Gentile in, the whole city goes into an uproar because they have over and over and over again throughout their history, people have done this and, and they refuse to let it happen again and they're a proud people and they go charging in and they grab him, drag him out. The priests slam the door shut uh, and immediately probably begin asking questions about what was desecrated, what do we, how do we begin to purify the temple again so that they could begin to open up the doors and have worship again. And so there's, there's this huge thing and the whole thing is a false accusation. It, it didn't happen. This Paul... We've talked about it for the last couple of weeks. Paul didn't bring any Gentiles into the temple. Paul was not telling Jews that they no longer need to act Jewish and obey the Torah. Paul was doing nothing like this. He was an observant uh, Jewish man. However, he understood that when he's in the presence of Gentiles and not around Jewish people, that it's Christ-like for him to put that aside and to do what the Gentiles are doing so that he can build relationships with them. Paul's a different kind of guy. He's doing a different thing. Paul's entire ministry in the, in the text, people don't realize, like, when you, when you read the writings of Paul, the reason Paul did anything at all is because Paul believed that he was the prophet that Isaiah had said would come uh, with the beautiful feet that Isaiah writes about. And, and Paul believed he was that prophet that would take the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, that would kick the doors open and bring them in in a way they've never been included before. They've always been on the outskirts. There's even a, there's a sign that we have, that, um, oh, I have a picture of it. Um, this right here, uh, I, it's, it's written in ancient Greek. Um, it, it was carved under the order of, of the half-Jewish king Herod. And the sign says this, it says, no foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. And whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. In other words, if a Gentile enters this temple, he's gonna die, we're gonna kill him. And there's the sign letting you know, Gentiles, you are not allowed in here. Um, and so this is what it had come to. And Herod even built a fortress right onto the side of the temple uh, called the, the Anton Antonia Fortress. Um, 
And so the troops were always there ready to stop some uprising, but also to sort of protect the Jewish rights if, if they could. So everyone comes from everywhere to get involved in this. And the whole thing is made up. Paul didn't do anything wrong. And so you have these false accusations. And I mean, we should see how sort of these false accusations work. Like they, they arise not necessarily out of hatred. What we see is the, the, the Jewish people don't hate the Gentiles. The Jewish people are scarred and abused and have carry a, a pattern of trauma from, from what has been done on the outside uh, to their own people. And so they're very protective of it. They're not trying necessarily to like, oh, maybe some of them are. There's a lot of ancient racial sort of boundaries and hatred going along there. But really this is born out of like fear. This is born out of pain and suffering. Um, and so what Paul, the pain that Paul is going through comes out of the pain of the Jewish people. Um, all of this is sort of mixed up together. And what happens is he bears the brunt of this pain that these people have felt for so long at the way that they have been treated in the world and they take it out on Paul and Paul doesn't really say anything Paul allows this to sort of happen and take place he's used to it he's been beaten up several times one time he was stoned and left for dead outside of the city walls um Paul understands God's in control and Paul lets go and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And then afterwards, Paul stands up and responds with a sermon. But we're going to focus on that next time. Um, right now, I, I sort of want to talk about stories, the way that we think of other people in our mind, the way that we think of ourselves. All of us have brains which are storytelling brains. The human brain tells stories. This is what it does, always, um, all day long. The human brain is a master storyteller. It, it does this all day long. It makes up stories in order to make sense of what's going on around you, of the world you're seeing around you. The second you look at anyone, you instantly begin making up thousands of calculations about who this person is, what they're all about, whether or not they're safe to be around, whether or not they're a threat, whether or not they're an asset, whether or not they're interesting, um, and you know, where they're from, what language they speak, if they're a threat or not, or an asset, if, if, if their current presence sort of in the space is peaceful or if they're angry or bitter. Um, all of this is your body trying to detect danger in the other people. Um, and we're all doing this at, all the t uh, at, at every moment of the day. You're collecting information about people's moods and motives and character in the time that you're actually, in all this time, you're sort of actually building a story in your mind about who they are and what they will be like. Um, and so, and the reason you're doing this is you're trying to make sense of their presence, of, of what is happening in the world around you. And the only way you can make sense of what's happening in the world around you is by telling yourselves stories. We all do this all day. Um, if you're out one night and you see a guy carrying a crowbar. Um, instantly, your brain's going to assume probably a few negative things. Um, you might catch yourself and be like, well, maybe he's just a maintenance worker on his way to pry open something. But more than likely, you're going to think, well, that's great for opening cars, right? Like he's going to smash a window of a car and take stuff. He's, gonna, he's, he's up to no good. However, if you see the same guy carrying three crowbars, you're actually less likely to think of him as a threat more likely to think of somebody who's transporting crowbars to another place. Or like bringing, maybe they're bringing them to their friends to start a ride, who knows? But chances are you're not gonna connect the information the same way because your brain is instantly gonna tell stories about these people. There's, there's this episode of Marvelous Miss Maisel, if you watch this, uh, oh, we got a big fan, okay. Um, Exciting. So uh, there's uh, her manager, like she's, she's at this resort in the Catskills and you can't get in, it's a very exclusive Jewish community. And her manager just walks in and she's like, how'd you get in here? And she's like, I was carrying a plunger and they let me through. That's all you have to do is carry a plunger and they let you through. Because people are telling stories about everyone around them. If somebody walks through with a plunger, 
you assume they're going to fix something right through a hospital with a plunger. Why not? Nobody else wants to go unclog the toilet. They're going to do it. I let them through. Open the door. Um, We tell ourselves stories about other people all the time. We do this in relationships um, with other people. When your spouse or your roommate uh, leaves sort of the kitchen a big mess and you walk in and you're tired and there's a huge mess in the kitchen, you tell yourself a story. They don't care. They just don't care. They just don't care. They don't care about me. They don't care about my day or they're selfish and they did all this stuff. And you instantly start telling yourself all these things about them, which may or may not be true. They're probably not. But it helps you make sense of what is happening. Because it doesn't make any sense that somebody would leave the kitchen dirty, right? Um, and so, you know, I criticize the actions of, of, of a senator or a president sometime, and you will instantly assume I'm on the other side, which is a false assumption most of the time. Um, I like to criticize world leaders. I mean, that's what I do. And Jesus is king, sorry. Um, and I'm comparing them all with him, and so far they're not doing a very good job. Uh, and so I'm always deep in thought, and, and, and you might perceive my face as being in a bad mood. Right? If I'm just walking around, there's a term for it. I'm not allowed to use it from the pulpit. But if I'm walking around, I'm just like this. People are like, oh, he's grumpy. No, actually, I had a great day today. I'm just thinking. Like, that's all. This is how I look when I think. Um, and so, you know, I, my brother, once we were walking by this bakery, and he smelled something, and he went, mmm, yum. And this girl's walking by and turns around and calls him a creep. We're all telling ourselves stories. This is what we do. These people are telling themselves stories about Paul. Um, And they're trying to make sense of what Paul is doing here, Paul's actions. They don't have a theological construct for understanding why Paul would spend so much time with Gentiles, why he would then be here, why he's teaching all the things that he's teaching. How does this make any sense? Why is he doing this? And the stories that they tell, they build and they build and they build and they they create this anger and this rage that they take out on him. And so we tell ourselves stories about other people in order to make sense of their actions. We don't always have categories for people's actions. And so what we do is we just kind of make one and we plop them in that category. Because when people's views are nuanced, we don't know what to do with it. We have a hard time. We just want them to be all one thing or another. And we can just label them and just dismiss them and move on. Say, you're with me or you're not with me. Um, the, the gospel absolutely pushes back against that, always. The, the gospel starts by attacking your identity and saying, that's not who, who you think you are. That's not who you are. Let's go back to Genesis and figure out what we're doing here, why we're here. Um, stories build reputations. Reputations are like these little avatars. Uh, they're out there. People are interacting with them all the time. Someone probably in the last week told a story about themselves, but you were probably in that story, and that shaped your avatar, sort of your reputation to other people. Um, Paul does not seem to care really about his reputation. He's able to resist sort of this natural urge that humans have to always be crafting and guarding their reputation. And we guard our reputations all the time. And it's out there right now. It's on, you have an online profile, Twitter, Facebook, all these things, and, and people are going and they're scrolling through and they're judging you and, and you have this reputation, you're trying to keep it so you, you edit and you curate and you use filters and you do all these things because it, it has to represent you well. And it's out there, it's got a world of its own, a mind of its own. Most people are, are, are very, very subconsciously um, obsessed with their reputation all the time. There's this book by this anthropologist I've been reading. Uh, his name is Will Storr. He wrote this book called, uh, it's called Selfie, and the subtitle is How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. Fascinating read. Um, but he talks a lot about anthropology and, and the, the makeup of, of human beings and sociology. Um, and he, he, he says basically, here's, uh, oh, I, I have a, a quote from his uh, right here. Oh, not there, that's a blank screen. Here we go. Caring about what others think of us is thought to be one of humanity's strongest preoccupations. Children start attempting to manage their reputations at the ra- around the age of five. Um, evolutionarily, 
I, I would say in our hunter sort of hunter gatherer days, it was really critically important that we maintain this really good reputation because if you didn't have a good repu- uh, reputation in the tribe, you could. And if you, I mean, if you earned a bad reputation, you would suffer beatings. Be, you could be killed. You could be ostracized. And in that environment, if you're ostracized from your tribe and your people, that's a death sentence. And so you had to manage your reputation. And we're just obsessed with things. And we've always had to sort of care about them and, and manipulate them in the eyes of other people. We're all, to some degree, anxious and hyperactive PR agents for ourselves all the time. But then you read the scriptures and you see a group of people who aren't doing this. Jesus does not seem to care about the people he's hanging out with and the reputation he's building for himself. He doesn't seem to care where this is heading and what people really think about him. He seems to care about one thing, which is representing God well. Uh, obeying his father. This is, this is what, it, what seems to be the center of, of his being. But we're all to some degree sort of these PR agents. We, we realize our reputation is bad and that the self, uh, can, can, we can enter this sort of state of pain and anxiousness and, and despair and panic and we start sort of rejecting even ourselves sometimes if we don't like what we've become. Your reputation, it lives on in gossip. That's how it's molded. That's how it spreads, that's how it changes. So we move from story to reputation to gossip. Gossip is this really insidious thing that we cannot help but do. It's, it's like hardwired sort of into us um, from our sort of uh, our forming as humans. Um, it's, it's, it's the sort of the delicious little details that we tell about each other and our reputation sort of, sort of it, it's how our reputations are given life. Um, we can't help but gossip. The, the studies that, that have been done uh, measure how much human conversation constitutes actual gossip, and it's, it's usually right around 65 and 90, between 65 and 90 percent. And yes, men gossip just as much as women, although they've been shown to do it less around women. It's an illusion. We're all gossiping the same amount. Um, the men are probably trying not to sound stupid around you. That's what's going on. Um, but like, they, they, we're all gossiping. We're all doing this all the time. Uh, gossip uh, typically serves three purposes in our sort of, I'm not going to say our, our, our God-intended sort of uh, life that we're living. I'm, it's anthropologically, um, the way society has developed, gossip serves three purposes. Really, the first one is, is gathering crucial intelligence. Um, that anthropologist named, uh, named uh, a professor named Robin Dunbar, she does this really famous attempt to calculate the size of the human tribe uh, in the ancient world. Like the, the, the the regular size, the, the, just the right amount of people living together and what basically ended up being sort of the, the regular size of ancient tribes. It came to about 148 people. So you're raised in a tribe of 148 people. How do you sort all these people and know who they all are? Because you have to know who's dangerous, who's nice. You have to know who's good and who's bad. Well, the, the way you would learn all this is, is through gossip, through hearing through hearing what people are saying and you're going to gather information. You're going to be like, oh, okay. so they're like this and oh, so I should stay away from them. Gossip is how we sort of train each other to think of other people. This is one of the things that we do. Um, it, it, it's how we, we, we pass on our knowledge of other people to each other. The second thing that it does is, uh, is, is gossip polices the tribes. It, gossip about a person breaking, breaking really important rules that the tribe has set, it generates these powerful feelings of moral outrage. And even in a tribe with no real laws, there is a sense of morality and gossip sort of helps people understand um, who's beyond our level of morality, who's doing something different and who should be ostracized. And this is the role that gossip has always played. So it's very natural to us to do this kind of thing. And lastly, gossip works to pass on cultural ethics 
mainly to our children. Um, this is how our children learn the ethics of their parents, through listening to them gossip. You should think about this deeply. The things you are saying around children, not even just your children, all children are listening to adults and the way that they gossip. Um, and there should be a manner in which Christians carry themselves that when we talk about other people when they're not in their presence, we talk about uh, the image of God on them and the goodness that they have. Uh, may our kids not learn um, to denigrate sort of the, the reputation of people behind their back, to always speak of them as the image of Christ. We, pay, we, we should be paying attention to what we're saying about people, especially in the presence of children, because they are actively, every moment of the day, picking up on who's in and who's out and who's bad and who's good. By the age of five or six, they've pretty well worked out who you don't like and also decided that they likely don't like them as well. We, we have to be careful with how we talk about people. It doesn't start with us paying attention to how we talk. It, it, it starts with paying attention to how we think, about how, how we look at other people. Um, with all of this said, Paul's main exhortation throughout sort of the books that he writes to the Christians, and there was a ton of gossip. If you, if you read about the, what's going on in the, uh, in the Romans, in the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, there is backbiting and gossip and slander and people shaping the images of other people to turn people away from them. The divide and conquer thing is very, very powerful. And we've always used it to our advantage. Uh, and Paul is writing to a lot of churches that are using these means of, of manipulation and communication. And he's always dealing with them and always working through it. Um, and Paul is regularly arguing that there's, there's two ways to go about your day. You wake up in the morning. You can follow the flesh. You can follow the spirit. One of them is easy, and it's the default me method. You wake up, and you're reactionary to everything going on around you. And as you move through your day, uh, what happens sort of sets the tone of your day. And if you can, you're trying to respond Christ-like. This is sort of what Paul would describe as a fleshly way of living. Um, what, what we're actually modeled by Paul, what we're actually given to, to be modeled, to, to live out, is this whole other way where we, where we move through the world as if we are a sense people. We're not responding to what's going on in the world around us. We're acting on the world around us. We, we move into the world as if we are here to bless. We are here to listen and pay attention. We're here to see in this place, what is God doing right now and how can I take part in it? It is, um, it is something which is learned, which is difficult, which comes about through practicing spiritual disciplines and working on uh, meditating on the things of God and, and learning to see people um, in the opposite ways that America is trying to get you to see people. It's dividing them all up into little groups, uh, into little names with little identities and ideologies and political views and all that. And, and God is calling you to rise above that. Do not live by the flesh. Live by the Spirit. Rise above it and see the humanity in other people and build relationships with them and invite them into what God is doing. Be the presence of Jesus in that space. Uh, this cannot happen if we're telling stories about people, working on our rep spending all our time working on our reputation, we're tarnishing the reputation of of others or gossiping. It does not work this way. That is living by the flesh. That is, that is something that we all, if we're paying attention regularly throughout the day, find ourselves living by. Two or three times a day, I wake myself up and say, man, I'm living by, absolutely living in the flesh today. And I used to think growing up, like, oh, that's just cheesy Christian lingo and all that, but like, I'm at an Asian era, I, I just don't care, like, I'm trying to live right. I, 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 I understand that... Throughout my day, I need to wake up and realize, like, oh, I've, I've been living by the willpower of Tommy, and, and it's just, it never goes well. It just doesn't. And I have to switch and, and live 
with the mind of Christ, led by the Spirit of Christ. I have to shift all of it. So, um, you know, Paul's exhortation, main exhortation, is that we ought to live by uh, the, the Spirit, not the flesh. And we have been given the tools to help us rise above all of this in the spiritual disciplines. I talk about it all the time. Um, that uh, my, I have a favorite spiritual disciplines book. I think it's still in the lobby out there. There's a, there's a list of books on the right uh, over there. You're left when you're out there. Um, but uh, one of them is by Richard Foster. It's, it's called The Celebration of Discipline. I, I read it probably once, a, really every, every other year now for the last like 15, 18 years I've been reading it um, to help me realize where I'm failing, practicing the spiritual disciplines, the things that will actually keep me centered. Um, and he goes through each one of them and he sort of, outlines guides for you to like here's how you can practice this and i absolutely encourage you i mean we're about to start a new year uh pick up that book and begin practicing the spiritual disciplines this year um begin to make i mean your your physical actions matter actually much more than how you're thinking much more than your brain i mean there's a reason there's a reason that when we tell someone i love you we don't stand 10 feet away and say i love you we hug them right you're communicating everything through the words right but it takes an action to really complete what has happened. There's a re- our actions matter, the things that we do, how we posture ourselves throughout the day. And so there are three particular spiritual disciplines that I wanted to lay out real fast um, to nudge you towards and encourage you. And the first one is silence. Um, Jesus practiced silence. You could see it at the cross. You could see him at his trial. Paul practiced silence here. Um, several times Paul allows himself his reputation to be tarnished and he says nothing. Several times Paul even diminishes his view of himself in the eyes of other people on purpose so that they won't look at him as some celebrity mega pastor or whatever. And actually a couple times he purposely, like in the city of Corinth, brings down his own honor and status in society so that he can purposely bring down the status of the entire church in the city because they were a little full of themselves and they felt a little high and powerful. Um, so silence has always been a practice, um, a spiritual discipline of the church, regular periods of saying nothing. Um, I know people who practice this in many, many different ways. For a while, I had someone who taught me um, one practice of silence that he has that I started practicing was the, I, I don't say anything uh, until I say a word of, of thankfulness in the morning for the things that God has given me. My very first words, I should say nothing. God forbid I wake up and complain about the lack of cereal and milk. You know what I mean? Like, like say nothing until I have first pronounced like the things that I'm thankful for. This is a way of practicing silence. Um, it has to do with minding the things that you say and how you talk. The discipline that the church has, has, that has given us to help conflict, gossip, and all of these things is the discipline of silence. Silence is perhaps the most difficult discipline to practice because it involves not simply refraining from talking but also letting your actions and your posture come under scrutiny, allowing other people to just have their way and inspect you, to just say what they will, allowing people to just gossip sometimes and not correcting the things that you hear. I've heard much gossip about myself over the, year, about myself over the years. All kinds of things that do not represent me at all that I have heard that I either said or did or believe in. It takes us the, the practice of silence to understand that like you don't have to manage your, your avatar, your reputation. You don't have to. You live by the Spirit and you let God do the rest. That's, that's the only thing that you can do. You'll become exhausted and fully prideful and self-obsessed if you do this kind of work and run around and begin to try to like stop everyone from saying 
things that aren't true or gossiping. It just doesn't work. Silence involves the ability to shut your mouth when you have been slandered and trusting that God's in control of the whole thing. It's understanding that some people are fully committed to misunderstanding you on purpose. There are many people that no matter what you tell them about yourself, they will purposely misunderstand you. They have no intention of seeing you in the right way. You have to accept that. Jesus accepted that. Paul accepted that. The apostles were very good at accepting that kind of thing. Um, And a lot of people will shred your reputation. And it's okay to see them doing it, shredding your reputation like a dog shreds a blanket and to allow it to happen sometimes and trusting that God will intervene. I'm not saying you have to. This is a discipline. It's a wise thing to practice sometimes so you can learn about how actually God works in the world. Augustine wrote about there were these three people that would follow him everywhere he went, everywhere he was giving speeches and, and sermons and teaching and writing and and everywhere he went, there was three particular scholars that would follow him and mock him and, and just trash all of his work. They would stand out outside of, of the places where he was speaking and they would, they would air all of his juicy gossip about him, all of his shortcomings, the things that they saw him do, the ways that he sinned, if he drank too much, just if he told a lie. They would stand out there and tell everyone all the negative things that they knew about him. Um, and it was infuriating. And years later, he writes about it, and he says that he was actually he came to be thankful to God for them because what he came to realize was that all of their chipping away at him, actually, while they were trying to destroy him, all their chipping away, actually, all it did was sculpt him into something that he was supposed to be. He learned to be very confident um, in who he was and sincere in who he was. And every time I read the words of Jesus hanging on the cross, and while they're, while they're absolutely, like while they're killing him, he looks upon them and he's able to see why they're doing this and see that this comes from their own pain and suffering and anger and, and, and fear. And he says, they just don't forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. And I can't tell you how many times I should have stopped and said they don't know what they're doing rather than actually telling them what I think they're doing. Telling stories about them that I made up in my own head. We have to understand our natural fleshly tendencies to put up walls and to tarnish people all around us. And we need to ask the Spirit to lead us to do differently. We have to. Um, And by the way, you can safely assume that anyone who's talking to you about other people is talking to other people about you. I want you to think about that. Um, Don't entertain it. Just don't. The most annoying thing in the world is when you say something bad about somebody and then that person responds with, yeah, but they're so loving and kind and caring. You're like, shut up. I'm trying to talk bad about them. And like, that's, that's the response. All right? Like, uh, okay, so let's go to the second one. Uh, submission. This is a hard one. Americans don't like to submit to anyone, especially not Britain. No, like, we don't like to submit to anyone, not each other, not the government not local municipalities or teachers or bosses or anybody, especially not each other. Um, we don't like to submit to other people. I know a lot of you have been, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of podcasts right now about massive church scandals and massive churches that have gotten taken down, all kinds of stuff. If, over the last few years, it has just over and over again come to light just all kinds of ways that pastors have destroyed entire churches through ego, through abuse, all kinds of things. Um, And I think a lot of it highlights American evangelicalism's resistance to submit to each other. We we can't receive criticism from each other. We're a narcissistic culture. Um, We're more, we we have more self-confidence in ourselves 
even when we are completely wrong than anyone else, than the other nation. Like, we excel so much in, in, in just digging our heels in and not submitting to anyone. But submission is a spiritual discipline. The early church, they submitted to each other. The fact that there were leaders in the church does not mean that everyone did what they were told. It means that the leaders went first in telling. So we're talking about a topic as the leader, as an elder, as a pastor. The leader would go first and lay out their theological arguments. And then he would submit to everyone else and listen to what God was doing elsewhere. And together they would commune and discern together what God was doing. It was never supposed to be one dude always a dude, like, like telling everyone what to do, right? Like it was never supposed to be like this. Um, in our drive to make pastors like CEOs and grow the business and the brand of the church, instead of simply shepherding people through hard times, um, we've really created leaders who, who were unable to, to, to handle things like, like criticism and slander and accusations of any kind. But this is actually where the church should excel. When accusations rise up in a church, this is where the church should head and shoulders stand above everyone else in society and be a city on a hill. Like in the mind of the Christian and in the church, the accusation should not be a threat to the work of the leader. This is an opportunity to further gain godly influence, to further submit and, 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 and form yourself in the image of Christ. When disputes arise, a Christian leader formed by Christ should never lord himself over the congregation. They should dwell in mutual submission as equals with the people and listen. If the people are bringing things to you, you listen. Um, because you're supposed to be like Christ. And Christ listens. So it's one of the things we emphasize that Christ does all the time. What is there to lose for a pastor or a leader in the church if he or she simply submits to the accusations of the congregation? What's to lose? The worst that can happen is they might have to confess some sin and then be embraced and experience the kingdom of God and reconciliation. That's what should happen. I was listening this week to, oh man, my, 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 one of my favorite authors also, Frederick Buechner, and he writes about this time that he was, he was um, let's see. Oh, I'm going to get this all wrong. There was a civil rights activist um, who was speaking, um, and, and she was on her way up to the, down, uh, okay, she was on her way to this big venue to speak, for a civil rights march, um, and she passed one of her old colleagues in the hall who ignored her entirely, and he just kept walking because he, he was upset about the work she was doing. This was, I think, the 60s, and, and so she went, and, and, and she's up on the stage, and, and she's speaking, and she begins to tell this story, this painful thing, how she passed a colleague in the hall, and the man was there in the room, and suddenly he stands up, and he walks out, and he starts walking towards the front, and she just stops talking. It was Maya Angelou. That's who it was, and she stops talking. And the man walks forward and he walks up onto the stage and he says, it was me and I'm so sorry and I apologize. And they just started hugging and they were crying and the whole room just started crying. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's the only way you can see it is by practicing it. It can't be explained. It can't be communicated. You have to see it. Um, and it only happens through submission and listening to each other. This is how you gain actually more influence by learning to submit and repent and confess. It's only in the CEO world where, where power depends upon one's invincibility to accusations. The CEOs that exist right now are, are the ones who have survived all the accusations, but once one sticks, they're done. But in the church, 
The posture should be different. Accusations are a time for us to humble ourselves and come and gather in the space and to listen and to repent and to reconcile, to hear each other. There is no power here other than the power of Christ to bring healing. There is no celebrity. There is no posture of arrogance or like you're hurting the institution. God doesn't care about your institution. I've said before and I'll say it again, everything the church, all of the work of the church can be done by five people in a living room. All of this is grace. This is a gift. An unnecessary gift. And the way God works is not through power. And so the last, uh, we got one more, right? Yeah, confession. Confession is the only logical response to the knowledge that God knows everything, to the knowledge that God one day will illuminate everything. That one day we will stand there, and I used a word at a wedding last weekend. I, it's a word I've been using lately at weddings. It's my favorite word that Paul ever, ever wrote. He takes words and he puts them together and, and invents new Greek words. But the word is uh, elikrinea, or elikrines, depending on like, what part he's using it. But he uses it in 2 Corinthians 1, where he talks about living in a godly sincerity. And the word elikrinea is, eli refers to the shining of the sun, and krinea is, is uh, it's, it's a word that means to hold up and to inspect something closely so you can see all the flaws and imperfections. And so, in, in essence, Paul uses this regularly to, re- to refer to the day of the Lord. He says, in essence, like, there will come a day when all the lights are turned on and Elikarnea is basically lifting up something in the light and inspecting it in the light of the bright sun and seeing its imperfections. There will come a day when all the lights will turn on and everything will be known. All the things that you've been hiding will just be known. It will all just be out there. We will see. You will see. You'll see mine, I'll see, like it'll all just be out there and everyone will know. There will come a day when we will be known as we know ourselves. And we will know everything about each other. And on this day, it's not supposed to be this terrifying, scary day. It's actually the great day of hope for the world because this is the day where we can stop. You can stop lying and you can just be honest about who you are and your brokenness and let the healing start. Let God intervene and make things whole again. And confession is the only logical response to knowing that all will be known. Might as well confess it now. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this. He says, our brother has been given to us to help us. He hears our confessions of our sins in Christ's stead and he forgives our sins in Christ's name. He keeps the secrets of our confession as God keeps it. When I go to my brother to confess, I am going to God. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of another person. As long as I am by myself in confession of my sins, everything remains in the dark. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has to be brought out into the light. Paul knew, even when the false accusations are flying and when he's being beaten, when people are gossiping and slandering and telling stories, Paul knew that one day all would be known. That they would know that he was not guilty of any of the things that he said. And he was perfectly content to wait for some reason. Paul knew, Paul knew that his history was filled with terrible things that he had done. And so when Paul writes letters, he regularly talks about how he used to be a murderer, killing entire families, men, women, and children, because they were Christians, because he was a zealot a religious fundamentalist zealot. And instead of hiding it, he just puts it out there. 
And he encourages other people. He says, and, you know, some of you were this too. Confess who you have been. Confess who you are. Let it go. What are you, who are you hiding from? The reputations of Americans? How about, how about the honesty of the body of Christ? Why don't we lean into that? You can confess your sins to each other. You can hear the sins of each other and you can listen and you can say your sins are forgiven because of the work that Christ has done. And it's these particular things that Paul is doing, this silence and this confession, um, the submission, all of these things that shapes Paul and allows him to remain Christ-like. Paul learned all of these things from Jesus. All of them. And in moments like this, they stand out. They really, really stand out. Paul will eventually be arrested and have to give a defense for himself and, and will be executed like Jesus. Never once does Paul lose sight that these people are made in the image of God and never once does he stop loving them and pouring himself out for them. In fact, he talks about his death, not that it, like his life was taken from him. He, he talks about himself as if he's being, what he, what he calls himself is uh, a drink offering being poured out on the altar. He says, my life isn't being taken, it's being poured out. I'm pouring it out for you. There's a Christian way to carry yourself. There's a Christian way to respond. There's a Christian way to move throughout your day. Paul is laying this all out for us. The apostles are laying this all out. The early Christians are laying it out. Let's begin to practice the disciplines. Let's begin to understand the role that they play in society because we cannot keep going being this reactionary people. We have to be the presence of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we present all of this to you. We ask that you would plant it in our hearts deeply, that it would work its way out through our hands and feet, and we would learn to be the presence of you everywhere we go. Um, prepare us for the season of Advent, the season of waiting and, and hoping for goodness to enter into the world. May we learn what we need to learn during this time of waiting, waiting for the good things to come as the world becomes colder and the leaves fall from the tree and as things appear to become more and more dead and as we await for the hope of your presence, may we learn something through all of this. May it change us in some way. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let's close it out with uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have the greatest Sunday of your life. Love you all. Grace and peace.